we were sat there listening to a story about Nelson how when he got killed I hadn't appreciated it. he got killed something like 40 minutes into the battle but actually we won because he wasn't a normal admiral he'd involved his captains in the decision making because they'd filtered that down to everybody on the ship when he died they just carried on as if he was there because they had that instruction they had that knowledge and they had that love for him because he'd empowered them and because they were all involved and again I sort of done oh I've done two and a half years of MBA leadership studies which was really good and really helpful but actually it kind of gets summed up in story about Nelson. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everybody. I'm Ben Morton and welcome to another episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast, the weekly show that brings you inspiring interviews with senior leaders and subject matter experts, all designed to help you be the very best leader that you can possibly be. This week, we are joined by Becky Valentine, who is the co-owner and lead of sustainability, well-being and building health at Spenbeck an award-winning business specialising in optimising work environments to help people and companies thrive. As the winner of the 2022 East Midlands Green Leader Award, she utilises all of her experience and expertise in the use of the UN Sustainable Development Goals to support companies in embedding sustainability and achieving their environmental targets, strengthening recruitment and retention of key staff and of clients. I absolutely loved my conversation with Becky, and I know that you will too. It truly was a fascinating conversation where we spoke, amongst other topics as always, about what it's like leading in a family business. Or more specifically, what it's like taking over and continuing to develop your father's business. We spoke about horizon scanning, we spoke about connecting the dots and taking calculated measured risks. And then on top of all of this, if that wasn't enough good stuff, the highlight of this episode for me was hearing about how Becky, as somebody with no acting experience, joined the Royal Shakespeare Company for 12 weeks culminating in public performances. She goes on to share with us the leadership and life lessons that she took from that experience that are quite literally incredible. Before we get into all of that great stuff though, please do visit my website at ben-morton.com where you can subscribe to my two-weekly newsletter and get a roundup of all of the latest podcast episodes plus loads of additional leadership development and personal development resources. But now, and without any further delay, let's dive right in to this week's episode and my fascinating conversation with Becky Valentine. Becky, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today to share your journey, your leadership stories with with me and and our listeners. So thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. Good morning. I want to start with, I guess, the background and context question. So you've had a pretty varied career, right? You've dabbled in lots of different areas, which I think is fascinating. Do you mind sharing a little bit of that journey and then bringing us up to date with where you are and what you're doing right now? Yep, no problem. So a long time ago, I uh, 
graduated from UMIST in Manchester with a degree in management science, had a love of business. I went straight from there to working for a football agent alongside him managing Stuart Pearce, of all things. Oh, wow. Um, but uh, I wasn't a football fan, <laughs> which I think helped. From there, I went into a variety of temping roles because I kind of always knew I'd go into business teaching and I wanted to get as wide experience as possible to help me deliver better lessons. So I did that for about two years and then became teacher of business studies and sociology for about eight years, um, ending up as head of departments at one of the schools and head of year 12. And then kids came along and I did that for teaching for a little bit longer. And then the opportunity came to move into the family business. Uh, My sister had already been there for about five years. Um, and either for my sins or the best move ever, I uh, I moved in. I've been there 12 years this month. It might even be this week. I can't quite remember the actual date. So helping there um, in the last couple of years now become the lead on sustainability, well-being and building health at the company. So Spenbeck has traditionally offered offices in grade two listed buildings in Nottingham's Lace Market. And we're now offering our consultancy support services to people. So I lead on the sustainability and the building health support services. So that's where I am now. So very varied. Yeah. And did you always think you'd end up in the family business or was that or was that never on the radar at the start? Oh, never, never on the radar. The uh, I remember always being introduced by dad's people as this is Becky. One day she'll come into the family business and me being resolute and going, no, she won't. So imagine his utter joy when I just went, yes, okay. And I think, oh gosh, I can't remember now, 12 years, early 30s, and then just eventually capitulated. But it was absolutely the right move to be able to take my, certainly my my business knowledge from teaching and apply that to the company was was a privilege. But oh, even now it's still, it still burns a little bit that I had to go, yes, he was right all along. <laughs> so what caused you to change your mind or to use your words just then to eventually capitulate (laughs) um so many things you know being completely honest I struggled with having two young children and teaching hats off to absolutely everybody who who still does it I really struggled to find the balance between what's required after school outside of school to prep and mark lessons with looking after two young children and, and the demands that they they had on me with moving to the family business came more of flexibility more time to fit around my family schedule that was a big draw uh but also as I say just just coming out recession time and I knew that I could help so why wouldn't I came in and made a big difference and it was it was lovely and I think you know I use the word capitulate with love it's true but you know to to be able to use that to help the company dad had been unwell me and my sister was doing a fantastic job but it required more more hands on deck really uh and so for me to be able to do that was was great but my gosh time has flown when I think about it it's 12 years <laughs> yeah and I think family businesses I've I've never been in one but from people I talk to what I understand what I can imagine I think it so I suspect it brings some wonderful perks and upsides and benefits but I'd imagine maybe in equal measure there's challenges and nuances of a, of a family business what was that like kind of in the first I don't know six 12 months get stepping into the family business was it was it all rosy were there challenges what did you find find the most difficult no, it, it wasn't rosy it was hard um, because we were all finding our feet we were very close families just the four of us my sister and myself mum and dad and 
mum had stepped back slightly. Dad was still involved at that point. He's not been for about six years now, but at that point, very much so. And you'd find yourself almost together 24-7. And I really struggled with that. So uh, very quickly, I was clear that we had to have the demarcation. You know, if we were meeting for family events outside of work, we didn't talk work. And it's just very easy to, when it's that tiny, when you've got larger family businesses like Mars, et cetera, you know, you're not <laughs> yeah. going to have the same issues. We, you know, it, everything was sort of the, the lines were blurred between the professional and the personal time. And actually, once we got very clear, no, no, this is, this is now family barbecue or family event or birthday party, whatever, not just, can I just, no, you can't just. And that took a bit of, of time for us all to find our feet on that but it it works really well I mean that was as you say within about 18 months it was it was fine but we're no different from most other family businesses in that and and as you you rightly say the the highs are incredible and the challenges are really quite difficult but I think running through all of it you know why you're doing it you know our our business was founded by our father and his brother and that carries you through a lot of the challenges, a lot of the difficult times externally as well as internally, because you have that extra sort of loyalty and connection to, to what you're trying to achieve. So it, yeah, it's, it's a blessing and a curse at the same time. So do you almost feel like a custodian of the business? That's exactly the word we use. Yeah. And, and, And what's lovely for us is, is that most of our 40 year history has been, looking after these grade two listed buildings, we, we feel a custodian of the buildings as much as the family business. I mean, what is lovely is, is mum and dad have always said to us, it's ours. I mean, my sister and I own it. It's completely ours. Dad is still chairman. Mum is still a director. So they're involved at, at sort of board level, but it is ours. And we don't feel compelled to be there we don't feel compelled to continue a legacy we do it because we want to and that's really liberating I think that there's a lot of family businesses and we felt it a few years ago you know the pressure to keep something going that your family has had particularly I mean we know many family businesses that have been going for generations and generations and my goodness me the emotional blackmail that sits there somewhere in the subconscious <laughs> going, we can't mess this up. We've got to keep yeah. it. You know, or going. self-imposed emotional blackmail, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's really hard. So we, we feel very grateful that we don't have that from our parents. Yeah. You know, we do it because we, we want to continue the legacy, not because we feel compelled to. Yeah. And seeing as you took over from your parents, you want to continue the legacy. You feel you're the custodian of the business. How much time, if any, do you spend thinking about what happens beyond you and your sister running the business? Do you think about you and your sister's children t- taking over? Is that on the is that on the radar, or is that too far down the line and it, it's it's not worth any sort of uh, brain power right now? I think the brain power needs to be elsewhere. Um, my niece is much younger, so that's not even a conversation. She doesn't even know right. what we do really uh, in the whole scheme of things. My daughter's veer from yeah no you're never selling it because we want it well do you want to work in it well no but we might we don't know too we don't (laughs) want it at all what no I take us back to my earlier conversation where I spent until until I was about 33 being adamant I wasn't going to go in it so way too early way too early but but again you know it's it's trying to replicate what we have you know if if the opportunity is there for them, great. If it isn't and they want to follow their own path somewhere else, 
brilliant. There's no moral obligation, certainly for me to my daughters to to come in. They are their own people. And if they go out and explore and then come back in, that's far more valuable to me and yeah. to the business. As you did yourself, I guess. Yeah, just to have that outside understanding and, and bring that in. So I would never be going, you should come in. And I, I feel for people in family businesses who sort of have that hanging over them. Yeah. And there's always the well-quoted, I don't know how grounded in reality this is, but people often talk with family businesses, don't they? The first generation creates it, the second one grows it. And if it's done particularly well, the third one sometimes screws it up because they've never not known the business being there and they've kind of lived uh, with a degree of luxury. Exactly. I think if you get past the third generation, you're home and dry, really. Yeah. But again, I, I just, I mean, I did a lot of governance work on family businesses a couple of years ago now and it it, it is fascinating and Cadbury did a, a big report about it I just I struggle with the compulsion in family businesses I just think that all family businesses should exist because everybody there wants to be there but that they also bring something beneficial to the table there's a lot of hangers-on in family businesses we don't have that you know we're literally just us as a micro SME but I know a lot of family businesses and I know of, not personally, but a lot where there's family members who are only there because they're family members. And really, if they were in any other business, they wouldn't be there. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's a tricky one for family. You know, I think the, the overall picture is sometimes painted that it's all, it is all rosy and easy. But the politics is so much more, I think, particularly when you get bigger and older. We're lucky that we don't have that. So, I think it's hard enough managing poor performance or underperformers in a massive conglomerate like it's even harder doing it in a business when kind of some of those people are family or close family friends right it's a difficult challenge it, yeah. it really is um and it's how you let's say it's how you set out your governance it's how you structure but again everything's so much easier on paper than in reality yeah and becky changing tack slightly when we spoke previously you mentioned how i think you said you'd always been a risk taker I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that and if that was something new that you brought to the family business and kind of then how things un unfolded there with, with you taking that approach. Not new to the family business. Our, our business was founded on risk. Um, right. My dad and his brother, <laughs> crazy that they are, saw buildings with no roofs, no ceilings in the lace market and went, oh, they'd be beautiful. We'll restore them. You know, nobody else would rightly touch them. Um, so risk-taking, going out on a limb is, is fundamental to who we are as a company, who we are as a, as a family. Right. I would say uh, I'm not as good as he is. I wouldn't have looked at that and gone, yeah, that makes sense to me. But definitely at the sort of family company ethos is make it happen. Um, and for me personally, I like exploring. I like seeing what's out there. What can I make possible? I don't always succeed mostly succeed Spenbeck's always been synonymous with sort of first mover advantage and, and putting our neck out and 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 it working is that sometimes more by luck than judgment yes I'm not gonna stroke our ego and say oh my gosh we get it right all the time and it's because we're brilliant no no there's always a lot of luck involved and, and and other people to help along the way but I think I've just been brought up and have a natural setting of why not mm. let's give it a go what is the worst that can happen I'm not flipping with it I do a lot of background research that goes with it as well. But if I like scanning for opportunities. I like to see what's out there. I like to see what we could maybe do differently to help the people we work with. Yeah. 
it's the challenge. I like the free song that comes with it, the challenge of it, I think. Yeah. Like really practically, how do you personally find the time to scan the horizon and, and look for those opportunities? Because it's something, it's a topic that comes up lots on this podcast. I talk to clients of mine a, a lot about it. I think one of the things that people moving from a mid-level leadership role to a senior level one often struggle with is stepping back out of the day-to-day in the detail and doing some of that horizon scanning. And in a small family business, right, kind of you are as time pressured, if not more time pressured than anybody else, any other business, I suspect, there's always loads to do. So how do you practically balance that, being in the business, doing what's got to be done day-to-day, with very effectively by the sounds of it scanning the horizon so you can spot those new opportunities and grab that first mover advantage that you mentioned i think it's it's twofold first of all i think it's got to be a personality trait to some degree i have always loved learning i was a bit of a nerd in that respect i read fact books rather than fiction for fun i I just am a sponge for stuff and as as wide and varied as I possibly can. And that's just personal preference. And because of that, I'm always learning and I'm always looking. On social media, I follow academics worldwide. I follow news organizations worldwide. I'm, I'm, I'm constantly looking partly for fun, but because that's me, that's my natural setting, but also because I don't believe that you can compartmentalize the horizon scanning. It's not like, okay, now I'm not working on, you know, I'm not working in the business this afternoon. I'm I'm on the business. I'm horizon scanning. It just has to be yeah. ubiquitous across everything that you do. You're always hearing, you're always learning. Something pops up. I'm like, oh. And 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 what I think works well for me is that I'm always looking across sectors. Okay. Because I like I like that. I love learning things I don't know. I may never use it, <laughs> but I enjoy that. But then it starts to give a picture. When when does it become a real trend? Because it's happening in other sectors and it almost feels like it's it's coming towards you rather than just, oh, it's a, a fad or the emperor's new clothes in your particular sector. You know, you can see things coming. It was like that with sustainability when I, you know, I was really relatively new to the sustainability game as a as an official role and as a putting it front and center of what we do at Spendback. And I had so much pushback from it going, no, 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 it's not. It's not that important. People aren't that interested. But I was confident, not because I'm right and my ego says, yeah, I was just confident because I've been looking at other sectors. I've been researching and reading and chatting to Gen Z about their views and how work should be, how the office should be. So I was confident that I wasn't just going, oh, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be quite important. I was as confident as I could be that I knew it was because I constantly be looking at all these different areas so that I could see it was all starting to come together nowhere near as quickly as I as it, it transpires. I felt confident that it's not I'm right, you should listen to me. It was always backed by knowledge. You know, the, there's a gut feel there. There's a gut feel of I want to explore that. I think there's a gap there, but it's never leading the troops blindly down a path. Yeah. You know, there's always background of me researching it as much as I can. Yeah. But I think going back to your original point about you know, how do you find the time? It's there all the time. So do you therefore find you struggle to switch off an inverted commas or is it more of a case that you that you don't because actually to your point it's you can't compartmentalize it. Do you just totally enjoy what you do? So actually switching off isn't a 
concept that come, comes into your head? I, I haven't been great the last few years at switching off. The last seven, eight months, I've made a concerted effort and I can switch off. I make sure my evenings and weekends are mine with my family and that's made it better. And if I see something on social media that I think is relevant, I just email it to myself and I'll deal with it when I'm at work. So I, whilst I'm seeing it, whereas previously I'd read about it and I'd think about it and I'd maybe ruminate about how we could, how it would affect us. Now I'm like, no, no, it's weekend. I'll send it and I'll deal with it on Monday. So I am able to, to be um, more practicing of self-care than I was previously. But I do, I, I do think, you know, my sister and I, we run a micro SME. It's just the two of us. So in that respect, as any company owner will know, you're never, you're never really off. Um, so, you know, I can, I can pretend that I have evenings and weekends to myself and, you know, generally I do, but it is always there. The phone call might always come through. The emergency might always need to be dealt with. And, and to me, that's the trade-off for you running your own business. So I don't, I don't mind that, but I have got a lot better at, I think when you're scanning everything, particularly my gosh, the last, even the last two, three weeks has been so relentless in sort of macroeconomic changes and factors that are really going to hit us all hard it's been hard to switch off, but I've made, I've worked harder to make myself switch off because then I'm not going to be good enough to deal with them because I'll just be exhausted and burnt out. So it's that balance of, okay, if I'm, if I'm constantly scanning, I still need to look after myself to be able to be in a position to manage them effectively. Yeah. To what degree do you, I don't know if you've ever had these. I was going to say, do you still have these? That's very, very presumptuous. I'm projecting kind of my business experience on, onto you. But do you ever have those thoughts like, what if I fail? What if this all goes wrong? What if I make a wrong business decision and it all falls apart? Or what if up until this point I've I've just been just been lucky? Because like I I certainly do. I'm 10 years now and uh, been self-employed and running running my own business. And to a degree, I still sometimes get this feeling like, am I just winging this? And what if tomorrow, like it all comes crashing down and it turns out I've not really had a, a clue about running the business all these years and I've just been, been lucky. Like, does that, does any of that resonate for you? And if yeah. it does, like, how do you, how do you manage that? Very much so. Um, I think you manage it because of there for the grace of God go I, I mean, until it all comes crashing down, why not enjoy it? You know, you, you've worked hard You've created your own successful business. I've built on the success of my father and uncle and, and, and made it our, we've made it our own now. Um, but I think, I think that's one of the things for me that's really important is humility. You know, it's not a God-given right. Everyone, you've worked really hard for it. You've worked hard with a lot of people to get there. But of course it could go in a moment. Is it, is it your fault that it goes? Not necessarily. Things happen all the time. We'll see that in the next few months through no, through no fault of anybody else's. Well, a whole different rabbit hole. But, <laughs> you know, there'll be a lot of people losing their businesses through sheer bad luck and energy mm-hmm. prices. It's, it, it's not their fault. They've, they've built something really successful. But, I, yeah, I do often pinch myself. I do often think there's a huge weight of responsibility to keep it going. I do panic sometimes about what happens if it all goes wrong. But I think that's that, for me, should be part of why we do it because it keeps it honest it keeps it real and it keeps you grounded yeah I'm sure it would be lovely for the people out there who've never considered that at all but that's not me yeah I, I don't know if those people are even out there maybe it's it's everyone's... I'm sure they must be 
But I think most who say they are probably pretending a little bit, but that's okay. Yeah, maybe the other narcissist out there or yeah. um, megalomaniac who doesn't, doesn't have those thoughts or psychopath, maybe. <laughs> Definitely not us, so that's good. Yeah. And are there any um, business risks you've taken that haven't paid off? Any that didn't work out? Any that you particularly regret or even if you don't regret, learned a lot of lessons from? I think we're always we're always learning a lot of lessons. Um, I mean, I'll be honest, nothing nothing jumps to mind that we haven't been successful at. Again, because there's been a lot of research behind it, some luck, you know. Uh, I remember, gosh, about ten years or so now, my sister Victoria, we we were struggling to get tenants in. I think it was post recession, and BT was refusing point blank to put in broadband into where we are in the lace market, wanting people to pay for it instead. Right. Um, and it was it was a huge investment and people just weren't doing it. So we went, you know what, we know that it seems so crazy now, but that time the internet wasn't as big as it is now. We were like, you know what, we need to put in super fast, dedicated broadband lines. And if we do that, the huge investment that we didn't really have post-recession, we, we didn't really have the cash to do it. We're like, if we build it, they will come. If we put this in, it will attract people and nobody else was doing it. Everyone else was like, that's crazy. And we were turning people away. And if that had gone wrong, that could have been very difficult for us to, to manage. Um, but it, you know, again, just, just repeating what, what dad and his brother had done, yeah. you know, we could see it. We, it was a, it was a measured risk. We, we're, you know, we're not the best entrepreneurs in the world. I'm not, I'm not going to say that for a second. You know, there's a level of risk that I just will not go to that I think sets the really successful people apart and that's fine it's always risk versus reward isn't it yeah for um, sure. but you know certainly for us that was a that was a huge risk and that if it had gone wrong would have had serious ramifications for our business yeah. but we were absolutely convinced that that's the way people were going and and it was and it was true and, and again another piece of first mover that, that Spenbeck is synonymous with because we we put the risk out there we ignored the naysayers and we'd done our we'd done our research yeah you mentioned the L word a while back, which is luck, which is something that crops up quite a lot again on on the show. Lots of leaders, business owners say, "Oh yeah, but but I was lucky, Ben, or we we were lucky." Like, do you believe in luck? Like, what's your view on on luck? Is there? I, do. I, abso- I absolutely do. But as I get older, I do believe in that phrase. That I used to hate that you create your own luck. Yeah, I I, I don't think. <sighs> To me, it kind of runs alongside of, you know, you deserve it or if you work hard, it'll happen. No, it won't. There's an awful lot of people out there who work work incredibly hard and through no fault of their own, things don't go their way. And I think I I do find it quite a patronizing statement because there's an awful lot of people out there who, who, as I say, work so hard and and for whatever reason. And I, I find it really insulting to them that. They're like, oh, you've clearly not worked hard enough. Otherwise, you'd be you'd be successful. And it's like, well, well, no. <laughs> but I think luck is the is the counter to that. Yeah. I think some people have been in the right place at the right time, said the right thing to the right person, happened to know the right person. And I think for me, it's it's about being honest and going, yeah, <laughs> it's not always because we're brilliant and we know what we're doing. There's a there is a an element of luck yeah. in a lot of it. But I do now see that. It is about sometimes creating your own luck, creating the situations where you are in the right place at the right time yeah. for, for the magic to happen, if, if that's what's going to happen. So, Yeah, I think I agree. And I guess there's probably a link there, isn't there, between luck and risk taking and, and confidence in so much as 
you have the confidence to put yourself in a position where you might spot an opportunity that you can you can seize right because if you don't have the confidence to do that or never take any risks you, you're probably not going to be in the place to take those opportunities mm. if and when they do do present themselves right mm. but I think there's so much out of our control that if something out of your control works for you and creates that luck then that that wasn't you Yes, you might be in the best position. You have created an environment where you're in the best position to leverage that. But that didn't happen because of you. That happened because you were lucky. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it's it's degrees. But, I, yeah, I, I would never say that everything that we did was purely because we're amazing. But, no, a lot of it sometimes is, is cut down to luck. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. No, no, cool. And changing tack completely, but I'm fascinated to ask, ask you about this. So can you tell us about the Royal Shakespeare Company? I can. It's the best best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I, lo- I love this story. I'm desperate to hear more about it. So I had just come out of doing an exec MBA for two and a half years. So you can imagine there was a bit of cold turkey going on in terms of, oh, I've got my life back and I actually have evenings and weekends to to actually breathe. Um, and I have always adored Shakespeare. As a family, we adore Shakespeare. The RSC to me is, is one of the best organizations in the world. The Royal Shakespeare Theatre in Stratford is like Mecca, if I'm allowed to say that. I, I, adore, right. I adore, adore it. And an opportunity came up for community actors in six towns or cities that are partnered with the RSC, not in being one of them, to provide 12 rebels as we are known, um, to, uh, to be in uh, Henry the sixth rebellion. And, uh, yeah, long story short, I, I got in and it was just a a, a wonderful thing because I don't act. I've never acted. It is so far out of my comfort zone. I was almost in tears at various points, even during the workshop audition, but I thought, you know what, as I always quote Dale Winton, we've got to be in it to win it. And I thought, (laughs) what am I going to lose? Worst case scenario, I've got a six hour, RSC workshop with RSC directors, heads of learning. What an absolute privilege to just do that. And and particularly as it was post-COVID where we hadn't been able to see many people, just to to see new people, to see people be in a room with people, you know, to get the energy from that was was glorious. But I still I still have I have a photo of the email that that we got sent when, you know, when when I got one of the 12 places and it just I don't think I don't think I've ever grinned as wide and wow. I still, yeah, it's just without a shadow of the doubt, the best thing I've ever done. Uh, and you yeah. said you sort of learned a lot from the experience, particularly leadership wise as well, by kind of watching different people and directors, like what were some of the transferable learnings that you took away from that incredible experience? Honestly, it's a, it's a whole different episode in itself. I'll, I'll be honest. So, so many things. So I mean, I'll try and limit it to sort of the key two. Really, I think the first one again was was linked with risk taking. In that, for two hours every Tuesday when we rehearsed, there's nothing wrong, only interpretations. There's no judgment. You were completely free. And as someone who's never done anything like that before, the feeling of liberation was unbelievable. To walk in, you you shut the door, you got in there, and everyone is so supportive. And it. it and it was just collective exploration and and there was never anything you did that was wrong it was just that right. was how you you decided to do it and actually i found that so different from the world of business where you kind of there's an expectation you do things a certain way and if you don't yeah. 
I don't know, I sometimes feel it quite cliquey, quite um, defined as to what is the right behavior and the wrong behavior. And to, to go for two hours every week and just leave that behind and be with people for whom that that just wasn't in their mindset was just incredible. And I it gave me so much confidence over. I felt like a complete fool for a number of weeks, but certainly by the end of it. And it wasn't a conscious decision. I could just feel it creeping into my my world of work and decisions I was making and how I was operating. And it kind of felt like a process of osmosis where it just made me feel so much more confident, not arrogant at all, but just confident in what I could achieve, how I could achieve it. And actually, I mean, yes, in business, there are right and wrong decisions. It's, it's not about that, but just my mindset totally shifted. And it, it it was so unexpected and such a glorious thing to to experience and to be with people who aren't in the world of business, who are just so much more calmer because right. they're in this world where there is no judgment. Yeah. And they can just be, and that's just such a lovely thing. And to what degree have you been able to hang on to that mindset or way of, way of operating? Because sometimes it can be hard, right? If I think back to personally time spent on expeditions in all sorts of far-flung corners of the world or time deployed overseas kind of with, with the military when you're there you can have all those thoughts and say to yourself oh, I'll never take cold running water for granted again after you spent six months drinking bottled water or I'll never take a nice clean warm shower for granted again but quite quickly you do because you slot back into normal life and you, you get used to all those creature comforts and you slip back into old routines and ways of being. Like, have you managed to hang on to that liberated mindset? Yeah. If so, like, how? <laughs> What's the magic formula? I don't, I don't know about magic formula, but it's just, it just felt like it happened by osmosis. So it was a gradual thing over, over the period of time. I mean, we started rehearsals in January. We finished performing. Our last performance was Shakespeare's birthday on the 23rd of April, which was so special. So quite a short period of time, really, quite short and intense. It was, but I think the way it was done as well, it just has become part of who I am. And because I know it's so important to me, I am right. making sure I keep it. I recognize that it's made me a far better person, far better leader. And so I want to hold on to that. I know, I know exactly what you mean. It's easy to slip back, but actually it's either fundamentally changed who I am or reawoken what was there and maybe over time it disappeared. I don't know quite which one it is, but um it's lovely but uh, I mean another hugely important thing for me was team development I'm I I recognized during a lot of reflection during the MBA that you know when we look at stages of team formation you know forming norming storming what have you I'm more of a come on let's crack on (laughs) let's get going because I'm I'm, you know I'm so motivated I'm so keen and I recognize very quickly no that's that's not the right that's not the right way to to lead um and we had a uh, situation where we had 12 weeks of rehearsals before we went to Stratford. And I think it was week seven before we started to look at our script. And we just spent, some of us were getting a bit like, uh, what? But we spent so much time with our amazing director practitioner, Becky, um, in Nottingham, learning our characters, developing our characters, developing as a team, doing all these crazy exercises and workshop things that when we got to Stratford, and things didn't quite go to plan. And we had nowhere near the amount of tech rehearsal time that we should have. And we're on stage and the, we're all in our big rebellion scene at the end. And this gorgeous chainmail curtain is going to go up. And we're in front of a thousand people who've paid a significant amount of money. And we're there going, we don't know what we're doing. This is a nightmare. 
it was the fact that we'd spent seven weeks getting to know each other, getting to know our characters, using that forming stage. We nailed it. I mean, it, part of it was a disaster and there was a lot to improve on, but we just came off exhilarated because it had brought us together as a team. We knew yeah. enough about each other. I think if we glossed over that and moved on to, right, let's just work on the scene, it would have been a car crash because we weren't able through no real fault of anyone's just timings to, to not have the right amount of tech that we should have. But that was so exhilarating as well. And it just really hammered home to me the importance of taking the time, slowing down and getting it right at the beginning, which was the complete antithesis to how I used to operate really. So, and I now make absolutely certain that that's how I am with, with projects at work and just, just in life generally, because it's so much better. And, and what I really took from, Having done two and a half years of business theory, which I love, I adore business, taking it into the theatre sector was how they know all this. It's not in books. There aren't books selling all this stuff in, mm-hmm. in you know, Waterstones, what have you, other bookshops are available. They just, they just are. And it was a privilege to be involved in that sector. And I, I still am now. We still go to rehearsals every, every week, and it's, it's lovely being part of that. But they don't shout about it. They just do it. And they, their product is the the shows they put on, the entertainment they provide for us, as opposed to something off the shelf. But they quietly get on and do all of this. It's just in a different way, and it's not necessarily phrased as a business thing with a business model. Yeah. But I, I just, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I took so much from it. It, it really was incredible how much leadership guidance I took from that whole experience. And I wasn't ex- expecting it. That's not at all what I went in for, but it, and that in itself made it even more effective, I think, and, and impactful on me, that I could see it happening in front of me. It, it was an absolute privilege to be part of, and I gutted every day that it's over. I mean, that, I mean, that's fascinating as well, isn't it? Sometimes the biggest, most powerful, most enduring lessons we learn can often be the ones we weren't expecting to learn. I, I, I think you're spot on. I think probably... Or perhaps if you'd gone into that experience saying, I'm, I'm doing this and from it, I'm going to look for some leadership and team development lessons that I'm then going to go back and then apply and spend back. It probably wouldn't have happened, right? Absolutely, absolutely that. And and again, it goes back to me of being, this was about pushing myself out of my comfort zone. And boy, did I do that. You know, there were quite a few panic attacks, lots of tears. It was terrifying. But what I got out of that, because I wasn't expecting anything, was he, I think, even more special and even more empowering. I mean, you, you say that. I remember um, I had the great privilege last year, yeah, to go for a, a, a meal down in Plymouth. And we were sat there listening to uh, the story about Nelson and how when he got killed, I hadn't appreciated it. He got killed something like 40 minutes into the battle. Yeah. But actually we won because he wasn't a normal admiral. In those days, it was very autocratic, very top down. And because he was different, because he'd involved his captains in the decision-making, because they'd filtered that down to everybody on the ship, when he died, they just carried on as if he was there because they had that instruction, they had that knowledge, and they had that love for him because he'd empowered them and because they were all involved. Whereas when the enemy had lost all of their people, their top people, they were paralyzed because they didn't know what to do. And, and again, I've sort of done, oh, I've done two and a half years of MBA leadership studies which was really good and really helpful but actually it kind of gets summed up in story about Nelson. Yeah it reminds me of a section from the good to great book by by Jim Collins 
in there, he talks about many of the companies who don't go from good to great. It's often because the leaders, what him and his team describe as the, the genius with a thousand helpers. So it's one super smart, superstar CEO, but all of the ideas, all of the decisions, everything comes from them. And to your Nelson quote and story, when that leader suddenly isn't there, it, mm. it all falls apart. Whereas all of those good to great organizations that endured and had success after success, the, the leaders were often very quiet, unassuming, kind of they weren't any sort of celebrity CEO, but kind of really kind of in, involved people. So mm. it, it wasn't all about them. It was very much a case of employing and surrounding yourself with people who are loads better, smarter, more competent than, than you are, which again, something that's often quoted, isn't it? But not always necessarily lived. Yeah. And I think I wonder, and I hope, as a, as a leadership mindset change, we're moving now to recognising that, well, I just think the like 80s, early 90s leadership was ego. It was ego and then it's testosterone, male or female. Now it's about empowering. I know very little. In the whole scheme of things, I know very little. Um, because we're a micro SME, I don't have any employees. I surround myself with and work with experts in their own field. And that's wonderful. And it's about empowering everybody to produce their best. It's not about me being in charge. It's not about me showing off how amazing I am because I'm not. You know, I think the skill of the leader is knowing when to take charge, knowing, you know, having all the different skills for different scenarios in terms of sort of leadership traits. But it's about bringing people together. It's about bringing people up. It's about knowing when you need to bring in expertise and supporting everybody because that is the only way to achieve sustainable success. And it's not, it's not about the ego. And I do genuinely feel that we're coming to a, a stage in our leadership and management development where that's where people see leadership. I hope anyway. Yeah, lo lo love it. Here, here. Becky, let's finish with a few of my regular quick fire questions. What would you say is one book that has had a significant impact upon you or one book that you frequently find yourself recommending to other people? Um, I'm going to be cheeky and slip into the one that I recommend to people is um, Invisible Women by Caroline Crado Perez because it's genius. And I would have said before I read that book that I've never experienced sexism. And now I recognize that structural sexism is everywhere. Um, not deliberate just because, you know, we, we have lived in a, in a male working dominated society and, and it's slowly changing. But, but my goodness, my eyes were open to that. So I recommend that to everybody, male and female. It's by no means a, a bra burning male bashing thing. It's just how things need to change structurally to, yeah. to achieve genuine equality. So that's, that's great. But the one that really had the most impact was Animal Farm, oh, which okay. I read when I was 12 and it really opened my eyes. I think I'm naturally on the cynical end of the spectrum, but my goodness, as a 12 year old to read that. Yeah. I can see it happening now. You can see it real time. And it just made me just be more critical in my thinking, be more questioning. I've always been like that. My mum hates it. Um, as a teenager <laughs> with that, you don't, you don't need that in the house, do you? But yeah, that really, to this day, I read it to my children when they were little <laughs> as, as a story, as an evening storybook. Um, yeah, I think exceptionally, exceptionally strong. And if people haven't read it recently, read it now because we're yeah. living in it now. 
Yeah, yeah I can't might add that back onto the near the top of the reading list, actually. Yeah. Brilliant. And what is one item I always have to caveat other than your mobile phone that if it was lost, broken or stolen, you would find yourself going out to immediately replace? So I really struggled with this because I'm not materialistic. I look around my house and everything's either photos of me and the girls or bizarre things that hold lots of memories. But I think actually if I had to, it would be my piano because it's my escape it's something I share with one of my daughters and it is actually a bigger part of me than I realized. And it was only thinking about this question that I realized how important it is to me. So I think that would that would need to be replaced if that was broken or stolen. Cool. And final question, which probably links back actually quite nicely to our conversation there about changing leadership and management and leadership in the 80s and 90s, perhaps. What do you think are three really important traits or qualities for leaders right now, today, in the world we find ourselves living and leading? My immediate thought is always humility. I think leaders should be humble, should be honest, and and then linked to that is authenticity. Be who you are as a leader. You know, if you are more on the autocratic end of the spectrum, then go for it. Just I think there's a lot of because there's so many books and there's so many things around it, it's almost like people are trying to be something they're not. And, and I think you want your leader to be honest with themselves as much as you. You can believe in them more. You want to work with them more if you know they're being honest. And we don't, it's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. So I really, you know, I really like the the Dr. Zeus quote of it, be who you are and say what you feel because those who mind don't matter and those who matter don't mind. And you will naturally find your, your role or your team or, or where you should be if, you, if you're honest with yourself and that doesn't mean that everyone as I say everyone doesn't have to be the same just be you yeah I think that's really important a bit, a bit of leadership schizophrenia probably isn't it trying to so. be somebody else or copy somebody else or apply yeah, everything they... from the thousands of books that are out there exactly and then the final one for me is always emotional intelligence which I've had to work very hard at and is it you know it's an evolving beast all the time but I think there's so many strands of that. And it's so important to, again, that links with the others, understand you, understand your, your staff, your team, who you work with, because that brings empathy. It brings understanding. How can you lead people if you don't fully understand them, if you don't fully understand you? I always remember when I went for a graduate training program, sort of workshops at uni and the Tesco one, first six weeks, you had to stack shelves. And so many people are like, well, I want to be a manager. I don't want to do that. And they instantly, well, how can you manage if you don't know what, what they're doing? And to me, that's that's what emotional intelligence is. If you don't understand and you can't empathize with the people that you're working with, how can you get the best out of them? How can you support them? How can you provide them with what you and they need to be successful? Yeah. You've just given me some horrendous flashbacks, Becky, from when I worked, worked at Tesco <laughs> at Christmas time. We would do what was called helping hands. So all of the head office staff would go and do shifts, had to do two shifts in, in store at Christmas. I think just, it's just really to, important. Just to but, help. Uh... And every year I ended, I did the night shift. I chose to do the night shift. And there was one year I ended up on like the coleslaw, hummus, couscous <laughs> section just trawling through pots and pots, trying to like tidy them, put them back in the right category, check the dates. It was absolutely. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'm not going to, I don't know how to describe it. It wasn't a fun night. It was hard. <laughs> but again, you took a lot from it, didn't you? I, yeah, I took a lot even, from even it. Even if yeah. it was, you don't want to do it ever again. Yeah. But to your point, actually, it, 
it does really help you understand a lot more of the business and the challenges and what other people's jobs involve. It's uh, it, it wasn't fun all of the time, but it was a great experience and learnt, learnt loads from it. Yeah, that's probably a, a fun place to wrap up, Becky. Thank you so much for for your time. As you was answering that final question, what really stood out for me was just how much you embody those three qualities that you that you share humility authenticity eq it just come through in buckets and spades in our conversation so thank you so much thanks for your for your time today sharing all your experiences and all the best for the future with the business you're very welcome thanks so much ben hey I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. And if you did, please do connect with me on LinkedIn and drop me a line over there to let me know what you thought. I'm super active on LinkedIn, so I'll see your message really quickly and get straight back to you personally. You can find me on there as Ben Morton Leadership. And after you've done that, if you've got a further two minutes to spare, A quick five-star rating on Apple Podcasts would be amazing as it enables us to continue growing the audience, which enables us to keep attracting more and more incredible guests for you to listen to and learn from. But that's it for now, folks, and that's it for this episode. I look forward to speaking to you again soon, and until then, lead on. (music) 